0: Father God, we gather to rejoice in your redemption this morning. Your plan from the beginning of time has been perfect. And while we struggle with our finite understanding to see all of the detail with which you have planned it, we trust that you are a good, loving, and sovereign God. We do so because of the grace for us with which you sent your son to the cross and resurrected him from the grave. In that sacrificial act, we were ransomed from sin's kingdom and freed from being sin's slaves. And so we gather here on this day, your day, to give you all praise and glory and honor. There's no greater purpose in our lives than to worship you. And even that ability has been graciously given by you. And so we thank you. And because of this love that you have already shown us, we know that you are ready and willing to hear our prayers. This morning we again pray for an end to the conflict, war, and bloodshed in Ukraine. We pray that you would use your sovereign and omnipotent hand to intervene in the midst of the peace talks. And we pray especially for the many children, the sick, and the elderly throughout Ukraine who are stuck in orphanages, hospitals, and care homes that are unable to access food and supplies. Please bring them practical help through the many amazing aid workers within their country and spiritual comfort in your gospel as they understand a side of mortality that our eyes do not. Lord, we pray for the many churches in our region and nation that preach your gospel this morning. We pray that your presence in the midst of the Branch Church in Corvallis, Selwood Baptist Church in Portland, and Outward Church here in Salem would be acknowledged with obedience and worship and sanctification by your word. We pray for their pastors, their elders, and deacons and congregations. Please empower them by your Spirit to be lights in a world that needs the knowledge of your redemption so badly. We also pray for the law enforcement officers in our church and community. In a world in which evil is celebrated as good and good is maligned as evil, we see even in the last weekend in multiple shootings across our country that violence is increasing and the love of many is growing cold. And So as we see this violence and crime in our country continue to increase, we pray that you would use it to call many to repentance but we also recognize the danger that these officers put themselves in daily to protect us. And so we pray for your protection over them and that your spirit would endear others to you through their service. Father God, as we learn about your plan of redemption this morning, please help us to be attentive and focused. For this is not a story that we are to hear once and then move on to something more important. The story of the redemption you've accomplished on our behalf is the core of who we are. It is our very lifeblood as your covenant community, and it is with the gospel that you nourish our weary souls. Please speak through our brother Nick as he re-speaks what you've given to us through your word. In the name of Jesus, our King and Redeemer, we pray, amen.
1: Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It's a joy to be here with you all this morning. Uh, It's good to see many familiar faces and many visitors, too, Uh, as Hans mentioned, my name is Nick, I'm the associate pastor here at Mission Fellowship, and it's a privilege and a joy to be here with each of you this morning. Conflict is a word that carries with it loads of meaning, loads of implications. Over 10 years ago, uh, between 10 and 15 years ago, Janelle and I served at a boys program in Central Washington. Conflict there was not only inevitable, but a daily occurrence. See, these boys had been placed in this program by their parents because they were not safe at home. Whether it was a fist fight that needed broken up, an angry tirade of verbally abusive language, or just passive-aggressive attacks on, uh, on somebody else's bed or laundry, conflict seemed to take place constantly. I can remember breaking up multiple fights that included objects of wood being thrown at individuals or just punches being thrown. You kind of look at them and you wonder, why are you actually fighting? What is the purpose of this? None of it actually makes sense if you just stop and think about it. These boys brought with them a history of conflict. Conflict not just came naturally to them, but it was reinforced to them. Uh, just through their learned behavior, just through home life. Isn't that the nature of conflict, though? It just seems to come naturally. We can't escape it. We can't run from it. No matter what we believe, in the moment we feel like we're right, oh, we feel like this is what I'm willing to die about and die for. Whether it's in the church, marriage, work, or just with our children, conflict is inevitable. I think I'm pretty confident conflict is one way that God's just like, yeah, you're not in heaven yet. This this is not uh, the end. There is more. right? And we long for that. We long to to be done with that. We come this morning to Revelation chapter 12. This chapter is the literal and narrative middle of the book of Revelation. In chapters 1 through 11... The first half of the book, we have seen that John, the author, has written to seven churches. These churches represented the complete, whole, timeless church of Christ. And the message, in the first portion of Revelation, the message to these churches was that the Lamb has conquered, and that conquering was done through the shedding of blood, through his death. It is the people of the Lamb who, too, who also will bring victory for the Lamb as they have been assembled for war. But their fight isn't with the weapons of war, but through the laying down of their life and proclaiming the victory of the Lamb, just as Christ did. The Christian life is one of pressing forward despite opposition, despite conflict. The life of a Christian is then rooted in conflict. It's inevitable. It is part of who we are. Conflict then comes in many forms. We are engaged in an eternal conflict that we know very little about. And so as we come to chapter 12, the veil of heaven is pulled back, and we get a glimpse of this eternal conflict that is taking place, that we are inevitably a part of. If you are taking notes, the big idea and the title of this sermon is The Plan of God Has Not Been Overcome by the Enemy of God. Go ahead and write that down. The Plan of God Has Not Been Overcome by the Enemy of God. Let's read Revelation 12, 1 through 6 together. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. This is the word of the Lord. As the veil of heaven is pulled back, we are given a glimpse of this cosmic conflict. John the Revelator is zooming over the redemptive historical narrative of Scripture and gives us insight into an old conflict, one that started early on in Scripture. And what we see in this cosmic conflict has afflicted the people of God, but God will also sustain them. So here, if you're taking notes, once again, is the three points of this talk, of this sermon, the six verses. God's means of redemption, Satan's opposition of redemption, and God's care for the redeemed. God's means of redemption Satan's opposition of redemption and God's care of the redeemed. Because John is zooming over at a high altitude, looking at the first, you know, all of the Old Testament, we too will be operating from a pretty high level. But we will dip down into scripture to see a few of the details and bring them out, hopefully, to make them become more real and alive. And if we are unaware of the conflict we are engaged in, this is why it's important, is because we need to know who it is that we are fighting against and what the battle is all about. So let's look at point one, God's plan of redemption. In these six verses in Revelation 12, we can see the plan of redemption that God has laid out. God's plan from the beginning was to work through his people to redeem the world. And how John is telling us this plays out is as a woman. John opens the chapter with the vision of a great sign. Now, this phrase is used several times in chapters 12 through 15, and we need to remember what it is that a sign actually is. A sign is not the point. It's just pointing towards the point, right? The sign, the stop sign is telling you to stop. It's pointing towards you, not towards itself. In a similar way, the signs here in Revelation 12 are pointing towards something else, not at themselves, indicating that we probably, as the reader, need to do a little bit of work to understand what it is that is actually being communicated. And so, the first sign that John sees is a woman, a woman in heaven. She is wearing the sun, the moon is under her feet, and on her head is the crown of twelve stars, like a bride on her wedding day. She is gloriously clothed and attractive with in beauty with the wonder of the universe. So, who is this lady? Who is this um, wonderful woman that we're looking at? Well, as the story progresses, we see that the character. That this represents is the people of God, both before and after Christ. Well, what, what clues do we have to that here in verse one? Well, the sun, the moon and the stars, throughout the entire Old Testament, represent are representative uh, of the people of God. For example, Genesis 37:9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the ele- and eleven stars were bowing down to me. This na- is in the middle of a narrative of uh, a story you're probably all familiar with. Joseph. And Joseph has a dream that the sun, the moon, and the stars were bowing down to him. Well, who is that? His family, the people of God. So, and so both in the immediate context of Genesis 37 and in the future context, the Bible often uses the sun, the moon, and the stars to represent the people of God. The image of the heavenly bodies here, and as that application and implication for the people of God, is for us just the unchanging nature of God's people, they are faithful and true, as Beale puts it in his commentary. The people of God are incorruptible as heavenly bodies. The sun, the moon, and the stars, they do not change. So it is with the people of God. What we see is that this lady, this woman, is not only clothed with the royal beauty of the universe, we see also that she is pregnant and in labor. Now, John is describing this much like one would when they wake up from a dream, right? Uh, I saw this woman, and as I was taking it in, I realized what she was wearing, and as, uh, you know, like kind of my, like just very progressive, right? When you wake up in the morning and you're describing a dream to somebody, or you're having your kids describe a dream to you, it's very, like, methodical, like, oh, and then this happened, and then, and then I saw this. That's exactly what we're seeing take place here. <clears throat> Once again... Imagery that is throughout the Old Testament that represent, that this is representative of the people of God. Isaiah 66, 7 through 8. Before she was in labor and she gave birth, before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. So John is continuing to borrow imagery from the Old Testament that that represents the people of God. Israel was often seen as a woman who was in labor, who was with child. Israel wasn't, though, the point of the story. They were a player in the redemptive narrative that God was letting unroll, unfold, uh, that was playing out. Now, I don't know from personal experience, but I've been told that labor is hard (laughs) and long. One doesn't actually know when it will be over. And this is the same thing, the same image that is taking place with the people of God. Here, the people of God throughout the entire Testament were wondering and waiting when their labor, when their their travail would be over. It was hard work. It was agonizing. And in verse 5 of Revelation 12, we see that the child that this lady, this woman is pregnant with, is a male child. Not only is he a, a, a man, but he is... One who would rule the nations with the rod of iron. We are getting a very high overview of the redemptive story. See, the nation of Israel carried this story forward throughout the Old Testament. They, they were the, the lady that was pregnant waiting for, for the, the, the child to be born. And this child was one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, verse 5 is also a direct reference to Psalm chapter 2, which we heard read earlier. But verses 7 through 9 specifically say this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in Revelation, this child that was caught up, this child that was born, this child that would rule, was none other than Jesus Christ. He is the one who will rule and rules the world with a rod of iron. So what this means is that Israel isn't the point of the story. Israel isn't the point of the Old Testament. Many who read and interpret Scripture especially Revelation, give Israel a special place. And they do have a special place insofar as they are the people of God or were the people of God in uh, the Old Testament. But Israel isn't the point of the story. Jesus is. From the beginning, they were just a vessel to carry the narrative forward. They were a player in the grand drama that was unfolding right in front of their very eyes and able to participate in it. And throughout the Old Testament, we see these people of God crying out for a savior, suffering under the oppression of their enemies, wondering how long do we need to endure. This is agonizing. This is laborious. That's what is meant in verse 5 by a child who would rule with a rod of iron. This imagery right from Psalm 2 gives us a picture of the rule of Jesus. Psalm 2 consists of the nations conspiring against God and his anointed. They are in conflict with him. Conflict is inevitable. But that conflict while long speaking in historical historical perspective, was short-lived when thinking through eternity. It is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who will ultimately rule over the nations of the world. And the rule of Jesus will be complete and exhaustive. And what we see in Revelation 12 is that while it appears that the nations are raging against the plan of God, there is more than meets the eye. On the opposite side of this conflict, we see what John sees as another sign in verse 3. And this leads us to the second point today. Satan's opposition of redemption. Let's look again at verses 3 through 4 of Revelation 12. Look at verses 3 through 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore a child, he might devour it. John, in his vision, sees a dragon, something like um, maybe that Peter Jackson thought up in Uh, the hobbit, right? But this dragon isn't interested in the gold of dwarves, but in the child that this woman is carrying. Now, who is this dragon? Who is this sign? What is this sign pointing towards? Well, if you jump forward a few verses in your Bible, you'll see that in verse 9, we are told, and we're going to cover this in more detail next week, but we are told that this dragon is Satan, the deceiver. So we have Satan here waiting to devour the child that this woman is carrying. And John, in his vision, sees this creature with seven heads and ten horns, and each head has a crown. Now, Old Testament imagery is just being used by John here once again, so I think it would be good of us to know what what is it that he's seeing? What is he speaking of? Dragons... Were used to describe other nations' oppression of God's people. Where do we see that? Ezekiel 29 3. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, My Nile is my own, I made it for myself. So the enemies of God's people, Pharaoh, was referred to as a dragon. So here in Revelation, as the curtain is being pulled back, as we're able to see what is taking place in, uh, in heaven through redemptive history. We see that God is at war with Satan himself. God is at war with Satan himself. Now also remember that seven is the number of completion through through uh, Revelation, and here we have seven heads of this dragon. So this dragon is the complete uh, opposite of God and his people. He is fully opposed, representative of every nation, of every one who is opposed to the people of God. The ten horns represent evil, evil that is embodied in the dragon. Horns were very, uh, once again, Old Testament imagery, and you'll remember from our time in Daniel, write this one down, Daniel 8, 9 through 10, speaks of a horn coming out uh, in one of Daniel's visions, and it's just representative of the evil that is embodied in the powers that are opposed to God. Now, if there's anything I remember from National Geographic... It's also that the the animal with the biggest and most horns wins, right? So this dragon is clothed and crowned with authority. We see that that authority that he has is he's able to sweep one-third of the stars from the heaven. The stars that were also on the, the head of the woman and the dragon is assaulting what they were standing for, the eternality of the people of God. Now, he isn't given complete authority. He can't wipe out all of the stars, only a third of them. So his authority is limited. John sees this, this nasty creature flexing and as he looks at this dragon standing, it's standing right in front of the woman who's giving birth. What is going to happen? And his, his job, his, his goal wasn't to make friends with this child, right? He, I mean this is some picture of a midwife, right? This this wasn't his job. <laughs> John has zoomed over the entire Old Testament for us. This dragon Satan the serpent of old old is opposed to the people of God. And that opposition began early on in scripture in Genesis chapter 3. It is in Genesis chapter 3 that this cosmic conflict began. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there? Turn to Genesis chapter 3, and let's just take a look at at the beginnings, the foundations of this conflict that is happening here in Revelation. John would have been very familiar with this text, and so we ought to be as well. Genesis chapter 3 right away we see that it is the serpent who in genesis is crafty and deceptive chapter 3 verse 1 now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the lord had made right this is the beginnings of the dragon that we see in revelation did god actually say this was the temptation this was the the question that he put before adam and eve This serpent in Genesis deceived the people who were gods. And this deception led to an all-out act of rebellion against their creator. If you were to read through Genesis 3, you would see that Adam and Eve's hearts were turned away from God. The temptation was, hey, look, if you eat this, you can be like him. But in attempting to be like him, they had to disobey him. And their hearts, instead of being turned towards him, were turned away. And so lest we think that we are immune to this sin, Scripture is clear. That sin, that original sin, was passed down and lives now in each of us. For it is through Adam that sin entered the world. And sin puts us in opposition to God. We are at conflict in our natural state with him. We are opposed to him. And so with this deception, Satan seemed to grab the upper hand. For it is just a few verses later in Genesis 3 that God hands down punishment to the serpent. Let's look at verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. God's word to the serpent is this i will put enmity between you and the woman there's that idea of a woman again and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel what god says is that satan you've you've struck the, the heel of this one that is to come it's it hurts it stings it's, it's a snake bite but you will be violently killed. Your head will be squished. So the pages of the Old Testament are filled with story after story after story of us as the reader of the nation of Israel as they were walking through it wondering, is this it? Is this the boy that will destroy the serpents and save humanity and bring us back to the garden and unite us to God? So we read of stories of Abraham. We read of Joseph, who was a ruler, right? This, he's he's wise. He's good. He's generous. This has to be him, not him. We read of Moses. He leads God's people out from slavery, from captivity, not him. Samson. I mean, look at his hair, and he's strong, right? It's got to be him, not him. I mean, David, what about David? Like, he's a king. No, but you're getting close. Like, this, this is really close. Each of these stories and others leave the, us, as the readers of Scripture, wondering if this could be the snake killer. The Old Testament lives in the shadow of Genesis 3. And these verses, back to Revelation chapter 12, are, are a swift overview of the entire Old Testament, a behind-the-scenes view of what is, has been taking place as the text was unfolding. I mean, it's helpful then to realize, hey, when I'm reading these texts, these scriptures, there's an eternal struggle happening here. There's a conflict, and this is actually what's taking place. There's, um, we're waiting for a Savior, a Savior that is opposed by Satan. Israel, the people of God, the woman in Revelation 12, carried the redemptive story forward until God was ready to bring his son into the world. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, born of a woman. And he too was pursued by Satan. At his birth, Satan thought it would be a great tool uh, to use Herod to try to kill all of the babies who were born in that area under the age of two. His family fled to Egypt. As a grown man, Satan took him to the wilderness and tempted him and said, if you bow down to me, I'll give you everything. I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Revelation 12 doesn't give us much detail about the life of Jesus. We see this baby born, and we see this baby being caught up to God. At every turn, the plan of the dragon was foiled. And what we see in Revelation is that this child was brought to God. Well, we are more familiar with the life of Jesus, right? 30 years, he began his ministry. At 33, he died a cruel, excruciating death on the cross. And afterwards, he was indeed caught up to God. In dying, Satan thought he'd won. I've killed him. He's dead. There's no way he can come back from this. And in dying, it's true, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. But Revelation doesn't highlight his death. It highlights his resurrection. In rising, ascending to God, who, he is now seated next to God ruling. And in doing so, he declared victory over sin and death and the powers of this world. He is ruling from the place of power with a rod of iron, even now, today. The grave could not hold him, for he was the rightful heir to the throne of God and was given power and dominion power that the dragon only dreamed of attaining. The dragon knew, I, I can't let this happen, or I will lose. And despite his best efforts, it took place, it happened. Friend, this is good news. This is why we're here today. Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the long-awaited Messiah, came to save. And he does save. Every day. He saves people from their sin. He saves you and he saves me. And salvation is spectacular and salvation results in a new life. A life that has changed affections. Change desires. All one must do is repent. Turn from that sin and turn to Christ. It is the good news. What John is giving us in Revelation 12 is the gospel. So if this is you for the first time hearing this, or maybe you've been here a while and it's just starting to come to life, come, come alive in you, and in, in, in you're connecting some dots. I would love to chat with you after the service. Uh, you can find me um, kind of milling about, probably. Uh, you could also find one of the other elders. We are more than happy to talk with you about this, about what God is doing in your life today. Being a Christian then looks like living a life of faith and repentance. That's it. Faith in Jesus, repenting from sin. Now, Satan is still opposed to the people of God. He is still at war with them. And we're going to cover more of that in the coming verses of Revelation 12 next week. But you are faced with a choice today to turn and serve the living God who has defeated Satan or to continue living in sin knowing that that your end and the end of of the devil is sure and all and will happen and has already taken place. And and know that if you're feeling like you should respond know that any opposition that you feel is not from God. Any hesitancy that you feel is not from God. Despite the opposition of Satan, God's plan of redemption moved forward. It went forward, and it still goes forward today. In the final verse of our text this morning, we will see that God will care for those who have been redeemed. God's care for the redeemed is our final point in the final verse. Look again at verse 6 of chapter 12. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This verse is helpful for us and reinforces for us who the woman actually is. No, it isn't Israel. Because we have Israel carrying the child, Israel um, as the woman giving birth to the child, and the child being caught up, right, Jesus ascended, And here the woman is still on earth. The woman is the people of God. She, they, the people of God are left here on earth. What do we see? He is ruling. He has a rod of iron. She is wandering. He holds a scepter. She is in a place prepared by God. So he is gone, but we are still here. And it is in this progressive, uh, remember this idea of progressive recapitulation, this view of Revelation that as the corkscrew tightens, we're looking now at the same thing that we saw earlier in Revelation. Well, where, where have we seen this time period? Revelation chapter 11, the age of the church. This is the age of the church, a woman wandering in the wilderness. Christian, we are that woman. As a church, we are that woman. It is we who are wandering in the wilderness. And the church is now in a place prepared by God for such a time as this. What comfort is that? The struggles that we feel, the ups, the downs, the joys, the highs, the lows, that everything has been, we are where we're supposed to be. The story here in Revelation 12 is intriguing because it covers the entire redemptive historical narrative. And it brings so many stories to our minds, and I've tried to highlight some of them, but here we have one more. The people of God are said to be wandering in the wilderness, where they will be cared for for 1,260 days. This is a total of three and a half years. So we've seen this come up before in Scripture, in Daniel. We've seen this time period, three and a half years, come up before in Daniel. Now, it isn't the amount of time that's significant. Three and a half years, okay, great. You can't do much with that. People have tried. It isn't the amount of time that is significant, but it is what is represented by the time. So it's a kind of time, not an amount of time. What kind of time is it? It's a complete kind of time. So it signifies the complete church age. So that's where we are. We find ourselves there, in the wilderness, the family of God who is cared for by God. The wilderness brings us back uh, to more of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, as they wandered through the wilderness. If you think back to the story of the Exodus, the people of God were brought out from slavery, and they were wandering there in the wilderness. The parallels, right, with us and Israel. People of God, saved from slavery, wandering, no home, looking forward to a home, right? We find ourselves there. The wilderness also, in the time of the Exodus, was a place of intense trials. A, t- a place of intense trials. There was food. It was the same day after day in the Exodus, wandering with no end, no end, no home to sleep in, temptation to disobey, being attacked by enemies, and even a plague of snakes, which is an interesting parallel. But in spite of those trials and hardships, the wilderness for Israel for in the Exodus was also a time of good. For it was in the wilderness that God dwelt, God tabernacled among his people. He led them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He fed them and he cared for them. That's the beauty of it. That is the wandering in the wilderness. Look at how Jeremiah describes it. Jeremiah 31.2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. So is the wilderness this um, scary, awful, bad place. Well, it's hard. But what does Jeremiah tell us is there? Got rest and God's grace. It was grace that was found in the wilderness. <clears throat> God's undeserved kindness. Through their wanderings, Israel was constantly reminded that it was God who had saved them and it was God who provided for them today. Because without him, they would have had nothing. God was their leader. God was their ruler. And God would bring them home. The promised land. Church, we are wandering in a wilderness. If you don't know it, we are. We have been saved from slavery. Delivered through the water. Baptism. Make a plug for baptism. And now we are waiting on arriving at the promised land. Our wilderness is similar to the wilderness of the Exodus. Sure, we may not be dealing with snakes every day uh, and manna that we collect off the ground, but we struggle just the same. We as the redeemed people of God are tempted to associate with the powers of this world. We're tempted to align ourselves with uh, with. with political parties. We're tempted to feed ourselves on things other than what God has provided, to look to entertain ourselves far more than we ought, to build programs as a church that will attract lots of people. But churches that look to care for themselves rather than depending, we ought not look to care for ourselves. Instead, we ought to depend and look to God for the things that he has given us, for the grace that he has already bestowed on us. What is this grace that God has given us to depend, to feed, to care for as we wander in this wilderness? Scripture, prayer, communion, and singing songs together to encourage our hearts. Those Four things are the grace that God has given us as his people as we press through the wilderness that we find ourselves in. They are his way of supernaturally caring for us as we wait. As individuals, we struggle with being in the wilderness, right? We know that this world isn't our home. Our hearts long for more. We know that there's more to come, Finding joy sometimes becomes a fight. We fight for it. We are placed in in difficult situations that appear hopeless. So, if you're a Christian, and especially if you're a member here at Mission, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Our conflict isn't new, you're not alone. It's an old one, and Jesus himself endured it. The dragon, the snake, is still up to his same old tricks. That afflicted the people of God throughout history. Sell out. Marry the world. Be different than God wants you. Disobey Him. This week in our text, we are met with and left with a bit of a cliffhanger, right? We're in the middle of a chapter. And what we're going to see unfold in the coming verses and in the coming chapter is that it is God who does win. We can know that for sure. It is God who wins. Though the battle rages on, the war has been won. And so I would encourage us each to let that be our hope and our confidence, that Jesus Christ is already victorious. We must then remember that our job isn't to fix the issues of this world, but it is to press into and trust the grace that God has already given to us, to participate in the fullest extent that we can as the good news is proclaimed.